Thanks for listening to audio from North Monroe. To learn more about who we are, visit northmonroe.com or download the North Monroe app in the App Store or on Google Play. Now, here's this week's message. How cool is that to dedicate a baby and get baptized all on the same day? It doesn't get any better than that. Let's get our Bibles. Go to Matthew chapter 28, We're talking about foundations, because it's so important for us to get back to those core things, to remember our purpose, especially in light of the turmoil that we're living in with the worldwide pandemic, social unrest, and now the threat of international war. Um, what is the church about? Let's remember what we're about. This is what we call the Great Commission. Matthew 28, verse 19 and 20. It goes like this. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. We call that the Great Commission because that's the calling of God on His church. It's one of the last things Jesus said to the church. This is what he wants us to be about. I've said it many times. I believe that a great commitment to the great commission and the great commandment will always make a great church. And so from this, we lift out five foundations that are, that are vital to us realizing and fulfilling God's calling for us. It starts with the message. The first foundation is a commitment to the message of Jesus. He said, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And so we can extrapolate from that to understand that to be the totality of the Bible, that what we are to teach is the Bible, not my opinion, not some latest uh, fad, but we teach the Scripture, and the Scripture becomes our authority for everything, right? I can't add to it. I can't take away from it. I can only obey it. The second foundation is a commitment to the mission of Jesus. He said, go therefore, and remember, that's a participle. It's not that I've got to go somewhere else to accomplish God's mission, it's while I go, or as I go, or wherever I go. Wherever I go, I'm to be about the calling of Jesus over my life, right? And then the third foundation is a commitment to growing mature believers in Christ. We make disciples. Go therefore and make disciples. Notice he doesn't say make converts. Now, converts are great and they're vital. And we want every person to come to a saving realization of Jesus Christ. But that's not the end of the story. Once birth has been achieved and the miracle of second birth has accomplished, you don't just leave the baby on their own, but we raise them up in the instruction of Christ so that they become fully mature followers of Jesus who can then reinvest in other people as well. And so this morning we come to the fourth, which is a commitment to multiply. It says, make disciples of who? Of your friends? Is that what it says? Make disciples of... People in your sphere of influence, is that what it says? What's it say? Make disciples of all nations. And if we want to achieve this calling to reach the nations with the gospel of Jesus Christ, then we have to multiply. And there's really a double meaning there. Not only is the church to multiply, but we multiply as we multiply. Multiplication becomes the means by which we achieve the commission. Let me show you something in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, okay? Uh, put your finger on uh, Matthew 28, 19, and 20. Let's go over to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2. This is Paul. These are some of the last words Paul wrote. He's writing from prison. He's writing to his protege in the faith, Timothy. He says, The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, 
These entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And I see four layers of discipleship here. The first is Paul. The things you have heard from me, Paul the writer. So we start with Paul. That's layer number one. The second is Timothy. The things you, okay, Timothy, that's you. You have heard from me. And then the third layer is the people that we invest in. Uh, he says, give these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And that's that fourth layer is those others also. And here's what can happen. When we get our heads around multiplication, then my calling's not just to add one here, add one there, add one there. But I invest myself making disciples, and those disciples make disciples, and those disciples make disciples. Then we begin to see multiplication. I believe that if every believer would sincerely make five disciples in his entire lifetime, we would change the world. Watch how it works. Let's take Paul's four layers of discipleship. Layer one reaches five. So how many people do you have after that layer? Well, you've got six because you were, right? Let's drop you out. Let's just stay with the five, okay? Layer two reaches five. But this time it's five times five, right? So there's 25. Then layer three reaches five, only this time it's 25 times five. And so you reach 125. And by the fourth layer, if you reach five people, it's 125 times five, that's 625 people. So if one person reaches five people who reach five, who reach five, who reach five, then that one person has reached 780 people. Now let's look at it this way. This morning, listening to my voice, whether online or in some other way, there's probably around 2,000 people at worship today. Suppose half of those got committed to multiplication. So they say 1,000. And they said, 1,000 people said, I'm going to reach five people in my lifetime. You know how many people we would reach? We would reach 780,000 people. If just five reach five. You got it? You see how multiplication works? There's only 150,000 people in Washington Parish, so we're going to have to spread out a little bit if we're going to reach 780,000. And that's the means by which Jesus told us to do it. It will only be achieved through multiplication. And let me say this. When the church multiplies, the church grows. I, I've got to say this because there's this sort of backward tension that is occurring these days toward larger churches. You know, it used to be, if you saw a large church, you would say those people are fairly effective at fulfilling God's purpose. But now it's like something suspect because large churches only care about numbers, right? And so I don't, you know, I don't know if I can trust a large church. That's the way a lot of people are feeling. That's the way a lot of pastors are thinking these days. Well, let me start with the numbers thing, Okay. Numbers in and of themselves are not a bad thing. If numbers were a bad thing, then why is there a book in the Bible called Numbers? I mean, I don't think that God would have a book called Numbers if numbers were bad. The key is, why are you doing it? You see, counting people isn't wrong. The question is why you're counting people. When Moses counted the people, God blessed him. When David counted the people, God judged him. What was the difference? Well, Moses was counting people because people count. It goes back to that. God said, Moses, you need to know who's under your care. And so you need to know who you're in charge of and who you're taking care of. It's like, okay, you remember that parable Jesus told about the shepherd who has the hundred sheep and he loses the one sheep. Does anybody remember that one? And if he loses one sheep, what does he do? He leaves the 99. 
And the point of that was the value of the individual. And I've said this many times, that God so valued the individual. And, and, and we go back to John 3.16, for God so loved the world, take that word world out and put your name in. If, if he loses one, the shepherd leaves the 99 to find the one. But here's my point on numbers. How would you know that you lost one if you didn't know that you had 100? And so in Moses' case, it was he counted people because people count. But in David's case, he counted people to make himself count. David counted out of pride. He was measuring his worth by the number of people under his rule. And for me, this is the key. Why do we grow? Do we grow to make ourselves matter or do we grow because people matter? See, here's the thing. The quality of a church is not measured by its size. A a church isn't great because it's big. A church isn't great because it's small. A church is measured by its commitment to the purposes of Jesus Christ. And when a church is committed to the purposes of Jesus Christ, it grows because healthy things grow. It can't help but grow because it's doing those things that God calls it to do that are healthy. But listen, when a church is not committed to the purposes of Jesus, what happens? It's a disaster. They get all caught up in dumb stuff. And it starts to be about, you know, what clothes you wear or what the flower arrangement looks like, or we don't want all these visitors in here who are going to make our carpet dirty. And we start to serve other things besides Jesus. And when you do that, you know what happens? The churches die. And I'm telling you right now, there are a lot of churches that are still existing today, and they don't know it, but they've already died. I came across this. It was stunning. For the first time since the late 1930s, fewer than half Americans say they belong to a church, synagogue, or mosque, according to a new report from Gallup. 47% of Americans now say they belong to a house of worship. That's down from 70% in the mid-90s and 50% as recently as 2019. And this is happening all around us. What's going on? Well, I'll tell you what's going on. We've forgotten our purpose. We stopped fulfilling the Great Commission. We stopped multiplying. And when we stop multiplying, we start dying. That's why it's so important. It's like, okay, well, what will it take for me? How do I multiply myself? Okay, here we go. Some of this is some of this you're going to get mad about. I'm just telling you. But okay. The first is you got to get out of your comfort zone. People are creatures of habit. You're a creature of habit. Amazon knows that, Facebook knows that, Google knows that, and they've designed their algorithms because you are a creature of habit, and they know how to target you, and they know how to set you up. And I know that because I look out on this congregation, and you're sitting where you sat last week. And every week you come in here, you sit right where you are. So I want to ask you to do something. I want you to get out of your comfort zone this morning. I don't know if I ought to do this or not. It's probably a terrible idea, but I want to ask everybody to move right now. I don't care where you move. Just get up and move somewhere. Just everybody move.
Yeah, we need some music. I need to get Blake up here to sing Brad Paisley's song, Southern Comfort Zone, right? <laughs> okay, y'all, find a spot. What did we learn? Here's the first thing I think we learned. When church people move, they get really noisy. <laughs> Y'all were very loud. You were very quiet until you moved, and now you're very loud. Second thing we learned was, I'm really mad at the pastor right now. Right? The third thing is, when he said that, it felt like a lot of trouble. Ugh. I got to find my purse. I got to find my thing. I got to find this. And what if I go somewhere and somebody else is already there? Next thing is, some people moved really big. Some of y'all moved all the way from there to there. Some of y'all barely moved at all. <laughs> so in fact, some of you just scooched over one chair. And, and some of you didn't move at all. It's like, that preacher ain't going to tell me what to do. He may tell me I got to move. I ain't moving. This is my spot, my chair. And I always say this, you know, if you come in and somebody else is sitting in your chair, that's not your chair, okay? Unless your name's on it and you can look. Some of you were so intimidated by this, you got your friends to move with you because you didn't want to move alone. What if I get somewhere and I don't know anybody, right? And here's the last thing. Next week, every one of you is going to move back. You are not going to stay where you were, right? And what does that tell us? Well, it tells us we're creatures of habit. And eventually those habits will lead you to a level of comfort with friends and church friends to the extent that you will isolate yourself from various difficulties and awkward situations to the point where you no longer have any friends who are outside the body of Christ. If you are going to multiply yourself and you don't have any non-believing relationships or friendships, then how are you going to speak the truth and love of Jesus Christ into a relationship that you don't have? So in order for us to multiply, we have to find ourselves getting out of our comfort zone and intentionally building relationships that are outside of our area of comfort. Um, Paul lived outside of his comfort zone. You're like, well, that was Paul, right? Paul had some, he's like, he pulled his shirt back and there's a big P on the underneath and you go into a clothes booth and turn into Paul the apostle. He could go anywhere and do anything and all that. Look, I think sometimes you're overestimating his giftedness. Yes, I mean, he was Paul. He was extraordinarily committed, extraordinarily gifted. No question about that. He did what few people have ever done. Maybe no one else has ever done. But at the same time, to do that, I'm telling you, Paul himself had to get outside of his comfort zone. Let me, let me read something to you. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 3. He's talking about first time he came into Corinth. I was with you in, look at that word, weakness. And in fear, that word is phobos. It's where we get phobia. I was with you in fear. And look at that third word, trembling. This is Paul, but he's so far outside of his comfort zone that he's walking in fear and weakness and trembling. And the beauty of it is that in my weakness, 
God is made strongest, right? And that's what Paul experienced throughout his life. But to get there, you have to be willing to leave your comfort zone, put yourself out there, and share your redemption story. Second thing is I have to get over my stuff. We have to get over our personal preferences. Let's go over to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1 verse 8 is the companion verse to the Great Commission. Jesus is, again, commissioning his guys. The difference is he's about to leave. He's about to be ascended. These are the very last things that Jesus said. So in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, he says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world. Howard Hendricks told us one time in class, he said, The most important word in Acts 1, 8 is the word but. And we're like, What? And he said the reason is because it ties the two ideas together. If you back up and look at 1.6 and you see what the disciples are talking about, what are they asking? They're saying, is this the time? Is this the time you're going to restore the kingdom? Why did they want this to be the time? So that they could be rid of all this suffering stuff and get on with the blessing part, right? We're ready for our big chair. We're ready for that, you know, recliner in heaven that, you know, Got my own remote and got the big screen and all that stuff. I'm ready to relax. I'm ready for my crown and my glory and all of that. And man, that's what they talked about all the time. They talked about it when Jesus was in Galilee, when he was in Judea. They talked about it on the night of the Lord's Supper. They were still talking about it. And here they are right before the ascension, after the crucifixion, after the resurrection, right before the ascension. What are they talking about? Is this the time? They wanted their stuff. It was all about them. And what did he say? He was so gracious. He said, that's not for you to know. But, there's that word. Here's what I want from you. But you're going to receive power, and you're going to be my witnesses, and you're going to reach the world in my name. And to do that, you've got to get over that preference stuff. Get over your personal stuff. Go multiply Secondly, we have to get over our personal prejudices. And here we go. He said, go therefore and make disciples of who? All nations. And you know what that word for nations is? Ethnos. You know where we get a word? What's our word? Ethnic. Go and make disciples of all ethnicities. And that means you have to love people from every ethnicity. And here's our problem. We are inherently tribal. People themselves, I don't care what ethnicity they are, uh, it doesn't matter. Human beings are tribal. And here's what that means. We seek out commonality. We forge relationships within those commonalities. We make unwise assessments about the value of our particular commonality. And then we judge everyone outside of our commonality. In our time, racial prejudice has come to to define the tension between black people and white people. Whoopi Goldberg recently argued unsuccessfully on the view that what happened to the Jews was not racism because Jews were white and Germans were were white. And of course she was wrong, and that was the worst kind of racism because it was murderous racism. But I think it highlights a point in people's thinking, and that point is that prejudice only occurs between black and white, and that's simply not true. In the Dominican Republic, when our guys go to the Dominican Republic to do missions, 
The Dominicans are very prejudiced against the Haitians who live on the same island, but there's a divide between those two nationalities. In the Northeast United States, white Italians are very often very prejudiced against white Polish and vice versa. The Irish don't like the Czechs. The Polish don't like the Hungarians. And they live in specific neighborhoods based on ethnicity. And it's understood you didn't intermingle. I've got a friend who told me about his friends in a Mexican church. And he said, there's another Mexican church down the way there. Do you guys ever get together and worship with them? And he said, those Mexicans in that church were very quick to tell him, those are not Mexicans. Those are Hondurans. And we don't worship with them. We thought that Latins was just Latin and everybody within that community. I was in Costa Rica in the rainforest years ago, uh, digging the foundations for a church, uh, seeking to reach the Alca Indians in the jungles. And, and we've quickly learned from the Costa Ricans that they felt a superiority to the Nicaraguans. I mean, prejudice comes in a wide variety of ways. It's not always even racial. It can be gender-driven. It can be financial. It can be social. It can be intellectual. The smarts and the dumbs, you know. Um, I got tired of all those smart people feeling superior to me. You know what I mean? Political. In Paul's time, it was Jew versus Gentile. It really wasn't about the color of skin. It was the Jew-Gentile thing. And the church was constantly dealing with the tension between Jews and Gentiles. It surfaced in Acts chapter 6 when they're feeding the widows and and the Hebrew widows were getting better treatment than the Gentile widows and the Greek widows were were upset about it. And that's how they formed the deacons. It It was at its core in everything that he did as the church developed and understood the gospel was to go to all people. It was very difficult for them to wrap their heads around that. And Paul taking the gospel to places like Greece and Rome. I mean, you have to understand that by doing that, he was taking the gospel to his most bitter enemies. I mean, we see this intentional effort by the church leaders to shatter every external distinction and bring everyone from every race under the overarching banner of the cross. In Galatians 3.28, there's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor nor free man. There's neither male nor female. For Here it is. For, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And when Paul began to take the gospel to places like Greece and Galatia and Corinth and Rome, he was at that moment taking the gospel to the people who had historically been his most bitter enemies. A hundred years Before Paul's writing, um, the Romans had invaded and totally, uh, totally dominated Israel and Jerusalem, and they hated it. There was a whole group of Jewish people called the Zealots who had dedicated their lives to kicking Rome out of Israel. Jesus had a zealot on his disciple team. I mean, they were passionately, rabidly anti-Roman. When you read Romans, you see Paul is constantly talking about, you got to get over that. you got to get over that stuff. There's no distinction between these groups, between Jew and Gentile. And yet in writing Romans, within 12 years of Paul writing Romans, the, the Roman general Titus invaded Israel and Jerusalem in particular to put down a revolt. And he so completely destroyed the city. They said 100,000 non-combatants died. They carried away 94,000 prisoners and they razed the city to its foundations. 
They took the temple and they picked up the temple stones and they threw them on the roads and in the ditches so that the Jews could never again restore that position. And the Jews did not live in Jerusalem as a people until 1948, 1900 years later. That's how complete the devastation was. And yet, here's Paul writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. There is no distinction between Jew and Greek, and that Greek is a generic term for everybody not Jewish. And by doing that, what they were saying is, and Paul in a very deep way, speaking from a deep place, much deeper than any of the racial prejudice you tend to harbor, he was saying, what I'm saying now is prejudice doesn't belong in the kingdom of God. You got it? The church was meant to be mosaic. It was not meant to be homogeneous. It's a mosaic. Make disciples of every nation. And to reach every nation, we have to love people in every nation. Here in this place, Jesus is the only identifier that matters. There's not Greek and Jew. There's not black and white. There's not Hispanic. There's not Costa Rican and Nicaraguan. There's there's not Haitian and Dominican. There's not Sterlington and OCS. Are you hearing me? There's not Neville and Washita or West Monroe. There is none of that. There's not River Oaks and this and that. There's not Bastrop and Ravel, all those things that divide us. We come together under the name of Jesus. And for us to accomplish multiplication, we have to abandon our prejudice. You've got to get over it. Get over your stuff. And then third, you've got to get in the game. Got to get in the game. We're going to reach these nations. You can't sit on the sideline. You are absolutely essential. In fact, you are so essential that I want you to make me non-essential. I went to the wedding retreat, the marriage weekend last weekend, and you know what was so cool? I was completely not essential. They didn't need me. They were like, if you want to come, fine. We don't really need you. I'm like, that's cool. A lot of people think that if the preacher hasn't talked to their friend, then their friend somehow is not going to get properly saved. Every one of you is essential, and God has given every one of you influence and gifts and talents and personality and background, life experiences that I don't have. Every single one of you is better than me in some way. In fact, many of you are better than me in a lot of ways. And I'm not going to be able to really significantly contribute to the calling that God has placed on your life because He placed that calling on you, right? And every one of us is uniquely equipped. We've got the craziest church here. You can't believe the people that are in this church. There's a guy in this church who played in the Super Bowl. NFL quarterback played in the Super Bowl. Now he coaches girls basketball. And he told me he, he, he thinks coaching girls basketball is way funner than the Super Bowl. True story. There's a guy here that fixes old gasoline pumps and makes them look brand new. It's the coolest thing. Email me later, I'll tell you who he is. There's a guy that knows cars like crazy and knows how to drive them. Um, In the early service, we've got an old guy who collects Pierce Arrows, those old cars. His dad was shot down in a bomber over Germany. He had to uh, get out of the airplane by crawling down the front landing gear and then bail out over Belgium, and he survived in the French underground until he was uh, repatriated in England. 
That guy's in our church. We got a guy in our church who shot the largest gar ever killed in Louisiana. Eight feet, five inches long, 210 pounds. It's the Louisiana state record, 14 pounds off the world record. And you know where he shot it? In the bayou right behind Frenchman's Bend. Don't swim in the bayou, people. <laughs> Same guy hunted with Dale Earnhardt. Same guy was at a shot show and there was a bomb threat called in. He spent three hours in a pickup truck with Ted Nugent. I said, what was it like? He said, crazy. <laughs> we have a lady in our church that can make insanely perfect cookies. We have an eye surgeon. We have lots of doctors. We have lots of physical therapists. We have lots of pharmacists. If you get sick, this is the best place to do it. We got a couple of AAA baseball players. We got a guy that can grow anything. We got an electrician whose company was doing work in Shreveport and they cut a main and they blacked out half of the city of Shreveport. He still doesn't like to talk about it. But if you want his name, email me. <laughs> we have big game hunters. They've killed everything. We got two of those guys. We got a guy that drives, a, that flies a crop duster as a pilot. We have a commercial air pilot. We got lots of plumbers. We got another NFL guy that was the number one recruited tight end in the country coming out of high school. Um, there's every kind of person here imaginable. We got a girl in this church who's a member of this church who's on the United States gymnastics team. She's training for the Olympics. She's 14. We got a lady in this church whose grandfather dropped the bomb on Hiroshima. Her great-grandmother was named Enola Gay. She's in our church. We got people who haven't done anything noteworthy. <laughs> we got a lot of those. But you know what? They're awesome to be around, and every one of them's got a Jesus story, and they've got a life story that this world desperately needs to hear. They got a story that you've got a story this world desperately needs to hear. And God gave it to you. And, and when you share it, you multiply. Friday afternoon at 3 o'clock, I did a funeral. A little girl named Olivia. She was born on February 14th, and she died 51 minutes later. Olivia lived 51 minutes. Mom and Dad knew that she wasn't going to survive. The doctors told her that she's got some rare chromosomal thing that it's impossible to survive. I told the mom that. And I, I was talking to the mom and I said, you know, I'm really impressed by you being willing to carry your, your daughter to term. I said, that must have been a tough decision. She said it was no decision at all. Now look, they, they went through it in the grief and the, and the process of how, why would this happen? You know, it's like, you know, Job, Job has that line, though he slay me yet I'll hope in him, but I will argue my case before him. And they argued their case before the Lord. And they struggled with that loss. But then they came to this point where there was acceptance. And it was this beautiful moment. And, and they would tell you, the presence of God was so powerful in that room when that little girl was born. And they said, we looked in her eyes 
her little brother and sister looked in her eyes and got to know their sister that they'll see again one day in heaven and just the power and presence of God giving them that supernatural ability to process that grief. It was unbelievable. And, and so here comes the funeral and I'm thinking it's going to be a small family thing in the mausoleum. Place was packed. And I'm like, who are all these people? It comes out that they had come through the recovery ministry and these were their recovery people. They're eight years sober. And this, this young mom who's lost her baby stands up and I'm telling you, I was unnecessary. And I'm just sitting behind them, just tearing up, praising God, listening to the power of God in her life. And then her husband stood up, and I'm, he was way out of his comfort zone. He's been sober for eight years. And now he's investing in people who are, who are dealing with recovery. And he stood there, and he talked about his baby girl, and he talked about God, and he made the statement, he said, you know, eight years ago, God gave me a second chance on life. And then he began to share the power of Jesus and the transforming power of the Holy Spirit. And you could have heard a pin drop in that room. And I had to talk after him, and I'm thinking, I don't have anything to add to that. And I don't know what's going to become of that story that he shared. I don't know. But I can tell you this, it's going to be good. Because the Holy Spirit's... I love what Rick Warren said. He said, God never wastes a hurt. Don't you love that? And these hurts that we go through in our life... It's not that they don't hurt, they hurt, but that God takes that hurt and He speaks that hurt through that hurt, the grace and love and compassion of the Father. They said they couldn't believe how many people came forward when they lost their daughter who had lost a child in virtually the same way. And that's what it's all about, isn't it? There are hurts that you have. There are life experiences you have. There are gifts and talents that you have. I don't have those. Nobody else has those. But there are people that need them desperately. And all you got to do, man, get out of your comfort zone. Get over your stuff. Get into the game. You want to do that? Wouldn't that be a great commitment we'd make today? Jesus, I'm yours. That's all you got to say. Jesus, I'm yours. Just whatever you want to do, man, just do it through me. You ready? Why don't we make that commitment? Every head bowed, every eye before looking down in prayer before the Lord. Father, here's our commitment. We're all yours. Multiply us. The things that you have heard in the presence of many witnesses, these entrust to faithful men, who will be able to teach others also. Multiply us. Use us and use the story you've given us to speak hope, peace, and love into people's lives. We thank you for letting us. And Father, we're before you, we're going to lay our stuff at your feet. It's not about us. We're going to lay our preferences at your feet. We're going to lay our prejudices at your feet. And the only banner we're going to fly here is the banner of Jesus. And I pray that we would be one in Christ.
Christ alone. Father, I pray for those that are here today because someone else shared their story that in this moment, they would say yes to you. Just, I just give my life to Jesus and let them be forever changed as well. And we'll wait before you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Our hope is that this message has encouraged you to seek Christ in your own life and make him known wherever you are. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and share it with a friend. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week.